Last two weeks, we've been looking at Jesus's blessed pronouncements, right? His Beatitudes. We're going to wrap that up today, uh, really with the last two. And so would you stand with me as we read God's word? Let me pray for us. Father, this is your word that you've given and we are grateful for it. Lord, would you give us faith to receive it? And would you help us by your spirit to practice it in our lives? We pray through Christ, our mediator. Amen. All right, Matthew 5, verses 9 to 12. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may have a seat. All right, as you all know, we, uh, not this past week, but the week before, we had our, our preaching workshop with the Charles Simeon Trust. And uh, one of the things that I've learned over the last, I guess, year and a half, especially with the Charles Simeon Trust, is that they are, are big about practicing things and kind of learning through doing Uh, Not just kind of learning in this, hey, get the concepts right, make sure you figure that out for a long time, and then you can finally go practice it. They like us to learn by doing things. And oftentimes doing the thing, actually practicing it is harder than just kind of hearing about it and understanding it conceptually. And so we did that at the workshop. I mean, it's, it's called a workshop for a reason. Like we're doing things, we're getting feedback from the other pastors who are there. It's great, super fruitful. Um, but I, I remember about a month ago, uh, we were on a video call, several of us who were going to help lead some of the different small groups with the director of the workshops. And he wanted to have a three or four hour video call with us really to train us up. And I didn't really know what to expect going into that video call, but you know, we had three or four hours and I was thinking, well, he's going to teach some and then I don't know, maybe we'll practice some at the end. He like taught just a little bit. And then it was basically like, let's practice this. And he's going to give us live feedback in the moment as we're doing it on the call. It was not the most comfortable phone call I've ever been a part of, right? Because he's, you're like, hey, now go try it. And then he's going to intervene. And so there were things like, you know, a guy would present on a text and then somebody else had to respond to that. So you had to figure out what you want to talk about that would be fruitful. But then you also had to ask a question that was helpful. And so there were several times in this phone call where somebody would start to ask a question and the director would say, stop, try that again. Like ask that question a different way. Right. You know, and so you would have to do it. You would have to practice it and embody it. But what I learned through that is actually by the end of that phone call, we had grown so much through it. It wasn't that comfortable because he was making us practice it, not just learn about it, but we grew a lot through it. Now, I I think you probably just the same as me as we've been sitting these past two weeks in the Beatitudes. And as we sit in the Sermon on the Mount, especially um, in coming months, like, as Jesus teaches these things, they're not that hard to understand what he's saying, right? Like, it's pretty direct. Like, we can understand it. But I think what gets difficult is when we have to practice it, right? To actually do what Jesus is calling for, to live out this blessed life that he's describing, is hard, right? And, and as we look at what we're going to look at today, or we all, like, nobody's going to say, well, I hate peace. Like, a, you know, like, we all like peace. But to do the work of making peace often is hard. Often we begrudgingly look forward to what's required for us to make peace relationally with others in our lives. Or when you think about the idea of being persecuted, like 
That's hard to actually do what Jesus calls us for here. And so as we get into this, I just want you to have that thought that Jesus isn't just describing these in theory for us to learn intellectually. He's actually doing these, talking about these so that we would practice them. Okay. As, as uh, studying the shorter catechism earlier this week for an exam, uh, and one of the questions towards the end of it talks about basically how are we to, to hear and receive God's word? And it says, well, we, we've got to receive it with faith and love. We've got to lay it up in our hearts. And we've got to practice it in our daily lives. So doing what God calls us to do in his word is imperative upon us. And so I want you to have that in mind as we jump into this. But let's jump into what Jesus says. So he pronounces his final two blessings. The first one, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So every disciple of Jesus ought to have this distinguishing mark on us that we are peacemakers, that we are those who bring and build peace around us. Like this ought to be kind of an aura about us that we make peace. James 3.18 says, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Right? You may think of Galatians 5 when Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. So one of the things that the Spirit is doing within us is growing peace. And it's not just a peace for ourselves. It's a peace that's to be lived out and brought about relationally. So the the context that we're to be peacemakers is that of relational strife, relational conflict, relational tension. And there's plenty of it in this world. But Jesus' disciples ought to be a sort of balm to that strife that's around us. And so as Jesus says this, he's not expecting that in the church, there's going to be an absence of this strife. Like he's not expecting that in a Christian family, there's going to be no tension relationally at all, and it's just going to be perfect. But he is calling us that when that tension rears its head, we ought to be working to bring about peace, reconciliation, restoration, and health in those relationships. And if you think about Jesus's work, this makes sense, right? Jesus's work was to come and make peace between God and man. He came to reconcile sinful rebels who were enemies with God to God himself. Not only that, he came to reconcile man with man, right? Ephesians 2 says that he broke down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, making, two, making one man out of the two. So Jesus makes peace himself. Throughout the New Testament, God is called the God of peace. So Jesus' disciples... We, as his disciples, get to walk in his footsteps. We get to walk his path of being peacemakers. Now, he's not saying here, he's not calling us here to kind of this peace at all costs, kind of pseudo peace, just kind of act like there's no conflict and make sure everybody gets along at all costs. This isn't some kumbaya and kind of throw all of your beliefs and convictions out so that you can get along with everybody. Because even a couple chapters after this, he's going to say, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. So we've got to think about these things together. But he is saying that his followers, his disciples, ought to be peacemakers relationally. Now, if we're going to do this, it requires certain things internally as well as certain things externally. So internally, we've got to have a heart that is being cultivated by God in a certain way. right? And I think even if you look at the Beatitudes that we've already studied, Jesus is, is paving the path for us, right? Blessed are the poor in, split, in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek. You can't make peace if you're not poor in spirit and meek, right? Without humility, peacemaking is very, very hard. Right? You can exert your own will, but you can't really make peace. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Before one can be a peacemaker, one really must be entirely delivered from self, from self-interest, from self-concern. Before you can be a peacemaker, you really must be entirely forgetful of self, because as long as you are thinking about yourself and shielding yourself, you cannot be doing the work properly. So to the extent that we are consumed with self and selfishness still resides in our hearts, we are limited in the peacemaking that we can actually do. I'm reminded of uh, some marriage advice that I received, or we received, uh, years ago. I don't remember much of the advice we were given, but this one I do. said, you know, you're going to have arguments, you're going to have tensions, you're going to have these heated conversations. It's part of life and marriage. They said, if one of you wins, you both lose. It's been very helpful to think about, right? If, if one of you wins an argument in marriage, you've both lost it, right? Because you are one, you are united. You're to be doing peacemaking work, not to be trying to win, right? So we need poverty of spirit. We need meekness. Jesus here has also said, blessed are the merciful, right? This should be fairly obvious, but if you are stingy with mercy, you will not make much peace, right? But if, if you are a ready dispenser, of mercy, right? If, if mercy flows from you as a fountain, then peacemaking will come about. Right? Even last night, one of my daughters, who's not in here now, but I think I had to go up to her room for the fourth time. And as I started to go up the stairs, I was evidently aggravated at this. And my wife, because we've been talking about this this week, she says, be a peacemaker. That was so helpful for me as I was going into that room. Very much full of self. And actually went in there able to give my daughter mercy whenever she needed it. So be merciful. You can think about for yourself. You're going to face some relational conflict later today, probably. Maybe tomorrow, maybe Tuesday at the latest. What difference will it make if you or someone else in that situation is willing to extend mercy? Or what difference will it make if nobody's willing to extend mercy? Probably a big one. Right, Jesus has also said, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In James 4, James tells us that many of our quarrels come about because of our own selfish desires. Right, so as God works in us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, right, to have a purity of heart that's increasing, right, we will be able to make more peace, create more peace relationally. So we need this internal character that Jesus has been talking about but we also need to follow an external path of peacemaking. Now, Jim's gonna, Pastor Jim's going to talk about this more Friday night. Right? We're having an equip seminar about peacemaking. We didn't plan this, by the way. We didn't think, well, let's preach on it and then let's do that. Maybe the Lord had that in mind, but we didn't. But that's what's happening. So Friday night, come out. Come be part of this conversation, this discussion that Pastor Jim's going to lead about how can we actually live this out within a local body. All right, so that aside, an external path. There's, there's some I'll add to this, but again, Friday we'll, you'll, you'll have more to this. Um, in the, the Shorter Catechism, or in the Catechism, whenever it talks about the Ten Commandments and seeks to explain them, for each commandment it has a pattern. It says what's required in this and what is forbidden in this. Right? And I think that that's a helpful thing for us to think about. If we're to really be peacemakers, what is forbidden and what is required? Well, first, what's forbidden Peacemakers are not strife makers. Right? Peacemakers are not actually quarrelsome themselves. Right? Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.4, don't have an unhealthy craving for controversy in quarrels, 
which produce constant friction among people. Right? If you love controversy, if you love quarrels, you're not going to be a very fruitful peacemaker. But on the other side of the road, peacemakers are also not conflict avoiders. Right? Peacemakers aren't those people who say, I'm not going to enter any of this. I'm just going to act like everything's okay. That actually is not peace. Right? That doesn't last very long, and there's a lot going on underneath the surface. So peacemakers actually don't avoid conflict. They go into it. There's, there's actually twice in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about this more specifically, where he says, if, if you realize your brother has something against you, it's on you to go to them. If you realize somebody else has something against you, go to them. Make peace. Reconcile. Be restored. Right? And he, he talks about it again later in chapter 7. Well, if that's forbidden, what's required? Well, we need wisdom. Right? To make peace, you need wisdom. You need wisdom to know when to shut up and listen and when to say something. Right? You need wisdom to know, is this a conflict I need to enter into or is this one that I don't need to enter into that I'm not called to? Right? You need the wisdom of God if we are to be peacemakers. We need this character that we've been talking about, that we've seen in here, to show up in our actions. Right? Think about this just very practically. If someone comes to you and talks about a sin or failure or mistake of you, and you don't have humility and poverty of spirit, you're not going to receive that very well. Right? But if you have that humility... It actually puts you in a position where you can make peace in that situation. Or if you put the shoe on the other foot, when you have something to address with someone else who's offended you, if you are absent of mercy, you will be limited in the peace that you're able to make. But ultimately, peacemaking requires action. Right? This isn't just something that we can think about. <laughs> this is something that actually calls us to act to intervene with the wisdom that God gives us. Sometimes that's very direct, right? Sometimes we're in a conflict where either I've offended someone or they've offended me, and Jesus calls us to go, right? To be a peacemaker actually means that we take some action in that situation. Sometimes it's more indirect, right? Sometimes there's, well, often there are conflicts in my home that I'm actually not part of, right? I've got four kids. So there's lots of little conflicts that come up that I don't have anything to do with directly, but God would call me to go and help be a peacemaker in that situation. Right? There are other situations, maybe at work, where you're not directly involved, but you can indirectly be involved and help bring about peace. So even before these past two weeks, as I've been more specifically thinking about these, this passage, if you would have asked me over the last several months, you know, how can I pray for you, kind of my, my go-to prayer has been pray for peace and patience in our home. Right? Because I know that, that we will need that today. <laughs> like we need that today. We need that this week. We need God to bring about peace and patience in our home. And right, you as well as I know how quickly peace can evaporate, even if you have it. Right? Peace can evaporate with a single word or even a single glance, and peace is no longer there. So we need this. But this, this week specifically, as I've been looking at this, it's changed my prayer a little bit where I've begun to pray more, God, make me and make my family members makers of peace. Like, help us to be peacemakers, to do the work that you've called us to, this blessed work you've called us to. And even more than that, I've really thought about for myself as the husband and father that God has called me to be the CPO in my home, the chief peacemaking officer, Right? Like, that, that's my role. Everybody else should be making peace. But like, as the father and husband, it is on me to be the chief peacemaker 
in my home. And so, fathers and husbands in the room, be the chief peacemaker in your home. Like, put that on, right, with me. Wives, mothers, you as well, and children. I talked to you all a little bit earlier, but children, you can be peacemakers in your home. You can extend mercy, right? You can be humble towards your siblings or towards others. So just consider in your life, where in your life do you need to be a peacemaking disciple of Jesus? Wait, what relationships need the peace of King Jesus to come about and be manifested? So Jesus gives another blessing here. All right, verse 10, and then verse 11 and 12, he speaks to those who are persecuted on his account. And he doubles it up here, right? He says it in verse 10, but then in verse 11 and 12, he, he repeats it, but he gets personal. No longer is it just blessed are those. Now he says, blessed are you, right? So he's not just talking in these Beatitudes about some theoretical people. He's actually speaking to his disciples very personally. And so verse 10, blessed are those, are, are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So right, when his disciples, when we live out righteous lives, when we follow his commands by the help of his spirit, there will be times when persecution comes simply for doing the right thing. Verse 11 Blessed are you when others say evil, false things against you on account of me. So following Jesus as his disciples will bring about the hating words of others. Martin Lloyd-Jones, before we talk about what this means and looks like for us, he helpfully points out what it doesn't mean. So hear this. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they are objectionable. He doesn't say, blessed are those who are having a hard time in their Christian life because they are being difficult themselves. No, so often one has known Christian people who are suffering mild persecution entirely because of their own folly or, be, or because of something either in themselves or in what they are doing. But the promise does not apply to such people. It's for those who are suffering for righteousness sake. I think that's helpful because... Even as I think about my own life and you think about yours, right? A lot of the pain or a lot of the words that others may say against you that you wish they didn't, uh, it's just because of my own foolishness or my own mistakes or my own sin. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about, blessed are you when others say evil things against you because you are a Christian. Simply because of that and for no other reason. So as we think about persecution, in its more intense variety, right? This is torture, bodily mutilation, imprisonment, and murder. Right? That, that's a very intense persecution that the church has known and knows today. On the less intense side, this is hateful words, slander, evil words, lying words. Right? And that's even what Jesus points out specifically in verse 11. But persecution, it, it covers a wide range. Ultimately, persecution is the world's hatred of Jesus and of his people. Right? Because the world hates God, it will hate his people. Because the world attacked Jesus, it will attack us as we follow him. But the really surprising thing is that Jesus says blessed, right? right? Really? Like, really? The, the, the persecuted ones are blessed, Jesus? Are you sure? But yeah, even as you think back to Acts 5, our, our Christian great-great-great-great-grandparents in Acts 5, when they were persecuted, they understood this. And they left rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. They understood this and they rejoiced at it. They didn't stop preaching. They didn't back down. They kept at it. They also didn't whine. They didn't complain about it. They prayed 
and rejoice. And so this path of persecution is really kind of the family way of life, right? You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 when the unrighteous one murdered the righteous one in Genesis chapter 4. And ever since then, the unrighteous have persecuted the righteous. Those who are not God's people have persecuted those who are God's people. Right? We see that in the Old Testament. Jesus Jesus makes reference to the prophets here. Right? We see that in the New Testament. Right? Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is going to happen for them. And then we see it played out ever since the New Testament. Like the, the, the church from then till now, across time and space and different places, has been hated by the world. That is normal, actually. And, and we should have that as an expectation, right? That the world will hate God's people. Like that, that is what the path that has been set. And it only makes sense because that's the path that Jesus walked, right? We, we follow a persecuted Savior. Why do we think that it will be different for his people? It won't. And so we shouldn't crumble under persecution. We should endure it. We shouldn't gripe about persecution. We should rejoice in it. And we shouldn't call it a curse. We should rather count it a blessing because that's what Jesus says here. Now, Jesus is not telling his disciples or us now something like, hey, if you don't have enough persecution, like, Go find it. Like, go ruffle up some feathers, do, do the worst you can, and go find some persecution. No, he's not saying go find it, but he's saying, if you follow me, at some point or many points on your path of discipleship, you will receive the hatred that the world has for me. It will be a target on your back, and you will get it. Now, I think we need to apply this in at least two ways. So first, I want you to just think very personally, right? You yourself. Like, we need to apply this to ourselves, You ought to expect the world to hate you and act against you simply because you follow Jesus. So do not be surprised if that happens, right? And you may or may not experience this daily, weekly, or even annually. But if you walk with Jesus, expect and know that the world will set its target upon you at some point, right? And it may be mocking words, maybe hateful words. It may be being overlooked or bypassed vocationally simply because you follow Jesus, it may be unfiltered hatred or be calling, be, being called this name or that name. Right? Those things happen. But I think this, test, this text asks us two questions. One, are you willing to be persecuted? Are you willing for others to say or do things against you out of hatred for Jesus? And are you willing to endure it? Because I think there are times when we have an opportunity to be persecuted, but we would rather be comforted and shirk our way out from it instead. So second question is, will you rejoice in it? Right? Because that's what Jesus says in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. So will you rejoice when persecution finds its way to you rather than whining, griping, and complaining? This makes me think of a friend of mine. Um, she was a, a student at ETSU when I met her. And some of you know who this is as I talk about her, but um, met her, I don't know, six years ago, something like five, six years ago, and she was a freshman at ETSU. She wasn't a Christian when I met her, and, but she was really interested, right? She was soaking up the gospel as we talked about it. But as we talked, it became very clear that she knew if she really put her faith in Jesus and, and pledged allegiance to him, that her family would ridicule her and hate her for it. Now, she's from Tennessee, and I kind of thought that she might be overplaying this as a dramatic 18-year-old. But I took her at her word, and I remember sitting with her at a picnic table at ETSU one day, and we looked at Matthew 19, 
And I just asked her, if your worst fears come about, if it's as bad as you imagine, or even worse, is Jesus still worth it? Like, if, if it's all that, is Jesus still worth it to you? And she said yes. And she, she placed her faith in Jesus. She began to walk with Jesus. She began to learn how to follow him. But to my surprise, the persecution she received from her family was worse than what she feared it would be. It was worse than what I imagined it would be here in Tennessee in 2017. But her family spoke so many words of hate and pain and lies and slander against her in the coming years. They, w- they did things that disadvantaged her. And I remember hearing month after month a, a new story and just thinking, when will this end? But I got to see her grow through it. And over the years, I had a lot of compassion on her for it. But this week, as I was reading this, it made me think, you know what? My friend is actually blessed. Like, that's what Jesus says. She's blessed because her family has hated her and reviled her and spoken these things against her simply because she followed me. She has been counted worthy to suffer for his name. In Philippians 1.29, Paul says that it's been granted to us that for the sake of Christ, we should believe in him. But not only that, he says it's been granted to us that for the sake of Christ, we should suffer for his name. Granted by who? Granted by your father. So God the Father actually grants to his children the privilege that we get to suffer for Jesus' sake. For different of us, that's going to be different things, right? Some less intense, some more intense. But when we are persecuted, whatever it is, may we not whine and gripe about it, but may we rejoice and count it a blessing from our Father. Second thing that this calls us to isn't personal, but it's corporate. Right? We are part of a very big family, right? a, a big family that spans all time, a big family that spans all peoples and all nations. And as we think about this idea of being persecuted, it calls us to know the persecution that our family face, faces and faced. Right? Our family has been blessed. We've only done this a couple times, but we've read these little chapter biographies of great-great-grandparents and great-aunts and uncles in the faith who have suffered for the sake of the name. And I can't tell you how much it helps my heart be willing and joyful amidst whatever persecution may come when I see their willingness and joy amidst their persecution. So know the history of our family, but also know the current persecution of our family. Like Know what's going on, and as you learn about your family being persecuted in different places, may that lead us to pray. May it lead us to pray, God, would you give joy to your persecuted people around the world? We're to be peacemakers. We're to follow this persecuted Savior. But that is hard. (laughs) It is hard to practice these things. And so how can we do them? Well, there's a couple things I haven't touched on in the text, right? The blessings that Jesus speaks about. We've got to be looking at these blessings, hoping in them, believing them, really believing what Jesus says if we're to do this hard work, right? So he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, right? So the son of God himself says, you will be a son of God as you make peace, right? You get to be like me. He gives that to us. And then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for they will have a great reward in heaven, right? So just think about where these blessings come from or how they come about. These blessings come about because of what Jesus did, right? The reward of heaven is something that Jesus earned by his perfect obedience for us. 
So he receives this great reward in heaven. And then in his kindness, he looks at his people and says, I'm going to give you this blessing as well as you follow in my, my path, as you are my disciples. Right? He is the son of God. And as we trust in him, Jesus says, you too will get to be a son of God. You too are a son of God today. And so he gives these gracious, overwhelming blessings to us out of his kindness. And so as you set about the difficult work this, this week of making peace or of enduring with joy the persecution that whatever may come your way, may you look to the blessings that Jesus gives you that he will give us, and may that help you to endure. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, you are kind to us and we are grateful for it. We thank you for these words of Jesus. We ask for your Spirit's help that we would practice these things in our lives. We ask for your Spirit's help that you would help us to believe that Jesus really gives these blessings and these promises to us. Would you give us faith in him? And we pray in his name. Amen.